Howdy, everybody, and welcome to the BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I'm more or less fully recovered from having been sick oh, good, yeah. uh, the last time, but um, still not so much that uh, I've seen too much, although I, I've got more movies to talk about than you do, so uh, I guess yeah. I've had to, some time to cram some stuff in. Well, school started again <laughs> for me, and uh, and... I'm only taking one real class, which is uh, TV history, and then I'm taking this colloquium thing where you meet and just uh, hear like industry professionals and, and academics talk about what they've been working on and stuff. Uh, but I'm also going to be a TA. It's a teaching assistant uh, for a, a film history class. Mm-hmm. So that consists of you know sitting in the lectures, uh, but then also teaching what's called a section. So you teach, uh, uh, an hour of supplemental material. And so I do that, uh, twice in a row for, uh, 20 kids each. Hmm. Um, are those so optional or they're for them, for the students? Yeah, no, they okay. have to do it. They do have to. So they have to, okay. you know, so they have to sit in a total of nine hours of class every week for that class, which is crazy to me. But, yeah. uh, but yeah, so over the course of the next 10 weeks, the movie journal will consist of, of the movies that I've watched in lecture. So here's what, here's, will be, this will be a fun game as we go through this. Okay. Cause of course I will also be watching older films just on my own. Okay. So you try to guess, uh, and it, it'll be, you know, uh, more interesting this week. See again, it's going to be subtle. See if you can guess what I watched on my own okay, and what I watched in a film history class. Okay. All right. Well, um, we'll do that when it's your turn to speak. Indeed. Uh, at the moment it is my turn to speak. Yes. Um, uh, I saw, I'm, I'm in my, um, uh, catching up on, on 2016 stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I do this every year after, after the new year, but before we do our top 10, which is, uh, the week before the Oscars. Yeah. Um, I, I try to catch up on, on stuff that uh, fell uh, through the cracks, if you will. Hmm. Um, interesting, <laughs> interesting phrasing. Um, so I, uh, uh, I saw a Brazilian film um, that came out last year called Aquarius. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, uh, and this is, uh, it stars Sonia Braga, who's a, a, you know, a big name Brazilian actress and has worked a lot in America as well. Um, and it's uh, very much a um, showcase for for her. It's very much a character study. It's it's a, it's about her, um, not, not about Tony Braga, but about her character. Uh, and it's uh, uh, two and a half hours long, mm-hmm. um, and doesn't feel like it at all. Thing this thing flies by. Yeah, um, uh, I think because it's so uh, immersive. But the uh, the premise of the of the movie is um, that she has lived in the same apartment building for a long time, and now this other this construction company has been buying people out of their apartments in this building because they plan to knock it down and put mm-hmm. up a new a new building. And she's the only one left. So at this point, she's the only one who hasn't sold. She's the only person in the entire building. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has a. a uh, a maid who comes uh, every 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 day who cooks and cleans, um, but they're the only people in the building, uh, and um, she's getting pressure from uh, neighbors because there's an implication that some of the money that they won't see all of the benefits from having sold their places until 
everything until the whole deal was done. So there's pressure on her to sell her, um, her grown children want her or some of them want her to, to sell. And there's, uh, and then there's a whole bunch of stuff that's going on that has nothing to do with that at the same yeah. time. It's just, you know, two and a half hours, um, that, uh, in, in this woman's life, not in real time, but, um, and it's divided into three sections. Uh, her name's Clara. It's Clara's hair, Clara's love and Clara's cancer. Those are the three, mm. um, uh, sections. So I, have pretty much laid out the, the premise and, I, uh, I guess it's because I don't know what to say about it other than that it's a wonderful, wonderful mm. movie. Um, that sort of, uh, I guess it examines how and, object or, uh, you know, a thing like a, like a home or a building, mm-hmm. or, um, there's a, there's a discussion early on because her, uh, she's a, um, a music writer, someone who's written like biographies of like composers and all, mm-hmm. and, and, and other musicians and stuff. And so there's a, there's a, um, discussion early on about like, um, the pros and cons of like MP3s as opposed to like physical media and stuff. And so that, and that happens right at the beginning or very near the beginning and sort of gives you a framework to, through which to think, to to ponder like, why is she being so steadfast about wanting to stay, um, in this, in this place? Um, I, I really, I feel like it's, it's so warm and, and human and, specific and universal, uh, that I, I, I have a hard time pinning down exactly how to talk about it, but it is a, a lovely film that I think everyone, uh, should do themselves a favor and check out if they get a chance. Aquarius. Aquarius. It's, it's the name of the building. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, now you have more than I do. Uh, do you want to do two and then I do one no, or I should I, should I go? The way it goes now, I'll just start in and end. Okay. And we'll good go back go. and forth. Yes. Yeah. All right. You um, usually discuss that off mic, but that's yeah, fine. Yeah. Sorry. That's uh, fine. This is uh, the BP movie journal. There are no rules. Exactly. It's loose. Yeah. You know, no, no rules. We're drinking. Right. Anyway, we're not, it's like, the, it's like the golden globes, David. It's like the golden globes of battleship pretension. Cause that's a crazy show. You never know what'll happen. Did you watch the golden globes? No. No, and why don't you watch the Golden Globes? For the same reason you don't watch the Oscars, probably? I do watch the Oscars. Not with people. With my wife, and I watch the Golden Globes with my wife. Why don't you want to... Well, okay, uh, you know what? We are heading towards an off, uh, an off-mic discussion. Uh, no, this is definitely an on-mic is discussion, okay. yeah. Why don't you want to talk about the Oscars, then? Uh, because I enjoy just watching award shows as entertainment, Okay, I guess. And I don't... I understand why awards I've, I have, as we've talked about in the podcast before, I have very complex feelings toward award season. Sure. Sure. And I think award season is generally a good thing. Uh, even though it's led to some bad things like a lopsided release calendar and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. but it's generally a good thing because of the discussion, but the ceremonies themselves, I don't actually think are important to movies. And so I tend to watch them as television events, just like, my wife and I and, uh, and and usually a friend or two will watch the Super Bowl every year. We don't we're not super into football. I mean, I follow yeah. it a little bit. She doesn't at all. But it's a big television event. So okay. I watch the Emmys. I watch the Golden Globes. I watch the Oscars 
as a, as telecasts and judge them as entertainment that starts and ends within their broadcast time. And the I and I and I am no I no longer have the in, an interest in analyzing them or fitting them into the discussion about cinema in general. Okay, so we're actually uh, closer than I thought, but in in uh, different ways. Yeah, I don't watch the Golden Globes. I watch the Oscars because I have to. Um, I don't really enjoy award shows. I don't enjoy awkward speeches. I don't enjoy jokes that don't work. I don't enjoy. Uh, I don't know. It just, I feel so. <laughs> It's weird. I, I maybe it's my uh, my theater background is the idea of flopping on stage, whether you be the host and you say a joke that doesn't land, or you try mm. to say something important in a speech and that doesn't go over. Whatever it is, um, or there's a technical difficulty <laughs> and somebody has to vamp. No, thank you. That's not a thing. I feel so horrible for the people hmm. on stage, and then I feel terrible. You know that literally happened this time. Yes, the, I do. The, the What's it called? Teleprompter went down. Yeah, I happened. I happened to be walking through the room as that happened, and I immediately was like, "Yep, okay, I am affirmed (laughs) in my in my thinking." I feel bad for the people on stage. I feel bad for the people in the audience. Um, And so, if I can avoid watching any award show, I will. I will. I will watch highlights the next day because at that point, it has been curated, and it's either something. And if it's just like, "Oh, watch this." terrible speech or something it's like i'm not gonna watch that that's funny because that's exactly how you watch award shows is how i watch um debates during campaign oh, sure, season sure. I, I don't watch them live i did watch a couple of the ones live this year i regretted it um yeah. i usually just watch the clips or read the uh you know the the recaps or highlights yeah. uh, the next day it's how i watch most sports too hmm. um but the, you know the um the golden globes are um in the Oscars and all this stuff. Uh, I think they're fun. I like the speeches even when I don't like the speeches. Like, I don't know if you've, you clearly didn't watch Tom Hiddleston's speech, but I don't know if you heard about it. No, I it didn't. Was, oh man. It was like a total face palm to use a word. The kids say, uh, humble brag to use the word. Oh really? Word. Uh, he basically taught, he won for the night manager and basically talked about when he was in Sudan with UNICEF. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. UNICEF <laughs> workers, I think, told him, came to him in a bar and told him how much they loved the night manager. And that was like the entirety of his story. Uh, and the best thing that I think went uh, a little bit viral was um, cameras caught Christian Slater, like reacting to it and like clearly knowing the camera was on him and trying not to roll his eyes. Yeah. It was basically Christian Slater like doing that squinting like yeah like hmm that like he said something interesting but really it's just christian slater trying not to roll his eyes yeah <laughs> yeah i i uh makes me like christian slater sure absolutely i feel like I, I i i really feel like i would like christian slater i feel like he seems like a cool guy let's reach out and let's try to get him on because i think he, and i don't know i, I i'm completely just like spitballing or projecting but i feel like he's a guy who um, I mean, he was probably fine when he was got, got famous as a younger, you know, guy yeah. uh, in his late twenties, early thirties, and was kind of like a cool guy. And mm-hmm. maybe he was a douchebag back then. Maybe he's he's not. But then he, I think, went through a period where he had a, n- a number of notable 
failures in terms of yeah. TV shows that never got a second season. You know, he, he, he sort of became known for that for a while with yeah. like my own worst enemy and like breaking in. And there are other ones that I'm even forgetting. Like he, yeah. he was known for a guy who had TV series that got canceled after one year. And then now he's on this show, Mr. Robot in which not only is it, did it get a second and now it's going to get a third season, but it's, um, it's a, critical and commercial success yeah. and he's part of an ensemble and i think and he's a one he's won awards for it uh, and he's won awards for it but i, I think he maybe like it's uh, i i think maybe he's a guy who who has come back to success later in his life after a series of experiences that allow him to really appreciate sure uh the the fact that he's that he gets to do good work on a good show and get recognized for it. Yeah. And he seems like a, he seems like a very humble guy because of that. I don't know if that's yeah, true. It, it might not, it might not be, but I, but honestly, I, 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 it does I, seem like it would have to be that. And right? I started thinking, I, I watched like the Mr. Robot blooper reels. I love, I'm a sucker for those, by the way, <laughs> I'll watch blooper reels from movies and TV shows that I've never watched. You know, um, you're starting to sound I, more like my mom. You watch, <laughs> you watch award them. shows. You love blooper reels. Um, but like, Christian Slater fucking around with the cast of Mr. Robot. It's delight. It's delightful to watch. Yeah. Uh, even though he is kind of like a corny dad type, but, uh, um, it's, I, I, he, he seems like a good guy. I will say I could see him actually not even being, uh, a douchebag at the time. Like when he was, when he was big, because yeah. Star Trek six, the undiscovered country, I'm sure you've, I think I've mentioned this on the show before that there is a scene where, um, you know, uh, Captain Kirk or, or somebody is is asleep in their quarters and they need to be uh, woken up because there's something going on. And so there's just so the door opens and there's a crew member standing basically in silhouette saying like, uh, sir, this some such and such is happening. That's Christian Slater. Uh-huh. Now, he was already very famous by then. So what's he doing with in this one? Well, he likes Star Trek and he that's asked cool. if he could be a part of it in some capacity. I that's feel like cool. that's a humble thing to do. That's. You know, yeah, I like that. I like that. So. But um, the Golden Globes. So, not, I, what did you watch? Did you watch Ryan Gosling's speech, which was very nice? I uh, I did, and then I read articles about how sexist he is. Ryan Gosling or Casey Affleck? Ryan Gosling. Oh, what did he do? Oh, he thanked his uh, his his wife for um, raising their children while he was, uh, or taking care of the the kids and the family uh, while he was uh, uh-huh. uh, doing the the film. And people thought that that was, uh, I forget what there are, there are two. So he should have not thanked her for doing that. <laughs> like not recognized her. They efforts said as a that there's, mother there's an inherent mother? patriarchy under what he is saying because, uh, she's made this, you know, she made this choice and good yeah. for her for making this choice. But why did, why should she even have to make that choice? Wait, what? Yeah. I don't understand the complaint. I see you follow you're we're on different internets. Yeah. You, you, you listen to too many. So I don't know. There's don't one, know. there's one, there's a website called everyday feminism that is uh, horrifying because it's, it takes stuff to, it takes a lot of things to an, they, they are looking for, they're, they're looking for trouble and uh, they will find issues where there are none. Like I thought that was a very humble and a very classy speech Yeah, to talk about, to deflect the attention from himself to talk about how the people who get the awards are maybe the face of a movie, but that yeah. that hundreds, you know, scores, dozens, hundreds of people, um, work very hard, uh, on, on movies and, uh, and then to go on and talk about 
how he wouldn't have been to say he wouldn't have been able to do it without his wife, yeah. you know, um, looking after their kids. It seems nice. And then to, to dedicate it to his brother, his late brother-in-law. I thought it was a very nice speech. Yeah. Now, if you're following, uh, if you're looking to get pissed off, what kind of responses did you see to Meryl Streep's speech? Enough that it made me angry. Um, the speech did. No, the I, response. Okay, good. Yeah, because I thought it was a nice speech. Um, I, I, I feel like uh, when people complain about celebrities getting political, it's like this. This is how far, like, how divisive the conversation has gotten. The thing that she said isn't other than the fact that it's about the president elect, right. it was not particularly political. Like to say, like she was basically saying, let's not mock disabled people yeah. and let's be nicer. And then I, w- I, I did roll my eyes that she then took a dig at sports because I'd have never liked yeah. that idea. Like you like art or sports. Like yeah. I never liked that idea. That's, like uh, I like, I like both, you that's, know, uh, governor Robert Ritchie thinking. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I thought of is, is Josiah Bartlett, uh, Josiah Jed Bartlett saying, you know, the center fielder for the, whatever baseball team is a classically trained guitarist. Um, which I think was a true thing at the time. Hmm. Um, I don't know. Uh, I could be wrong. But um, I don't think that was something Aaron Sorkin made up. I think there is like a oh, professional right. baseball player who's also a classical guitarist. Um, Man, so if he breaks his hand, he is in bad shape no matter <laughs> yeah, he's what. Got this out of he can't fall back on anything. Um, so I thought it was a very nice, uh, very very nice speech. Um, there was there was an eye roll moment in there when she's talking about like I forget the I forget the word, but like she's talking about how oh people in Hollywood are like the most vilified people. Uh, in the world or in the country or something like that. And okay. like, I think you're going to be fine. <laughs> but, you know, um, uh, you know uh, I, I couldn't stop myself from getting involved in some Facebook, uh, uh, let's say discussions based on responses to, to her comments. But I think something that's happened in my brain with, and, I, and it goes back to the fact that the, the Democrats didn't really lose this election. The Democrats in terms of the popular vote won by nearly 3 million votes. Okay. Um, and it's, so it's, it's sort of made me think of the, I don't want to say conservative. I want to say like the alt-right or the troll type of conservative troll type of argument to go back even further and say like, even like the basis of this is wrong. Not, not just that I disagree with you. It's mm-hmm. that this, you're begging the question and to use that term in its original sense, I you're know. starting with a false, false premise. Um, and when people talk, uh, uh, I had this thought, but I wasn't very, el- I couldn't have been very eloquent about it. And then the actor who's on Veep, I think his name is Timothy Simon or Simons or something. Simmons, uh, I believe Simmons. Okay. Um, I, I, I don't watch Veep. He's the tall guy. Yes. Um, he had a he had a, a, a very interesting. I don't know if you saw his like tweet thread. Uh, I saw about part of it be retweeted. Yeah, basically the idea was that when, when people say that like uh, people in Hollywood live in a bubble, he's saying kind of what Ryan Gosling was saying, which is that most of the people who live in Hollywood aren't the the cast of Entourage. They're not like famous <laughs> actors and agents and stuff. Like yeah. Hollywood, like movies happen because more people than not who work in movies are electricians and truck drivers and food service people like Hollywood is in terms of just percentage of jobs. It's a blue collar industry in a lot of ways. And it's, and it, 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 uh, and, 
um, then the thing that I don't think Timothy Simon came out and said this, but the thing that I think is, I feel like a lot of the people who um, would accuse Hollywood types of living in a bubble are the ones who are maybe actually living in a bubble. I think, especially as the demographics have changed in this country, there's a, there's an insidious undercurrent sometimes. Uh, and it, it, it goes back to the way we use the word Americana to mm-hmm. usually mean sort of traditionally white America, uh, yeah. uh, America. And I think sometimes there's, an, there's this, there's this pervasive idea that real America, whatever that means is represented by, small town, rural or exurban white communities. Right. And I think, I don't think that has been true for a long time, but I think as demographics change, it's increasingly untrue. I, I think way, way more people, um, live in, um, if not urban centers, then at least more, uh, ethnically and economically diverse parts of the country. And that it's the, the people who are holding on to this, post-war suburban idea of Americana are the ones who are actually living in a bubble. I would counter that by saying that Hollywood has shown itself historically to be pretty recession-proof and depression-proof. So if you're working in Hollywood, even as a carpenter, you have a job. And so that is... So economically, you are in a bubble. As someone who fears what's um, potentially coming to not just the country's economy, but California's economy, Mm -hmm. uh, which is... um, doing well, but probably on the brink of a recession, but who works in the movie industry. Yeah. I'm kind of hoping that's true. Uh, I really am hoping like going into the next, uh, uh, few years. I mean, it's, I it's not get my, to keep my job. It's not impervious to it, but it, but if it is hit by any kind of recession or depression, it's hit to a much smaller degree than the rest of the country. And so it can be easy because the the bubble could also be seen as a political one and an ideological one that like everybody in Hollywood and, and here's they, the thing. Oh God, sorry. Everybody in, in Hollywood. And of course it's not everybody. Uh, there's John Voigt, but, um, and, you. and me, <laughs> you guys, you, you and Kelsey Grammer and John Voigt. And I think Patricia, Patricia Heaton, I think is the, <laughs> the other conservative. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, as the, let's say the vast majority, um, you know, they definitely believe in this very specific thing. And so when they hear about blue collar workers in certain places who are frustrated and, and might've voted for Donald Trump based on that, like they can't even imagine what they can't imagine the economic aspect. You, you watch news reporters and stuff and there was talk of economic, uh, despair in like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania for so long Sorry, they, they, they were talking about economic despair for about a week, and then it jumped immediately to, well, it must be race. It has to be race, obviously. Never mind the fact that these went blue uh, the last two uh, presidential elections. Like, they must have become racist. Like, well, or they're not being talked about in, in ways that they would like to be talked about. Well, it's honestly, it's probably both. I mean, in America and in other parts of the world, uh, uh, other, you know, white parts of the world, economic anxiety and economic despair has been shown to turn into racism when people don't oh, have sure. anywhere else to oh, sure. go with it. You look at the, 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 the skinhead movement in the 1980s and mm-hmm. in, in England, which the skinhead movement started as just a pro working class movement and then right. got, you know, 
the frustration and anger led to it getting taken over by by racists. And, and that's so, and this is like this whole campaign has been like a perfect example of that. But mm-hmm. at the same time, they also were they weren't voting for Barack Obama; they were voting for Hillary Clinton. But that's neither here nor there. The point is uh, the I think everybody. I'm sure I live in a bubble as as I've. So a lot of the students that I'm teaching are not film majors. In fact, the vast majority of them are not. Oh, and so, that's interesting. boy, isn't it? And so there are certain terms that you and I have taken for granted for a long time. Like what? Shot. So you have to like talk about the difference between what, like a shot and a take. Yeah. Yeah. But I think there are people who consider themselves. Uh, I I get on my high horse about this, right? About terminology, like people. If you go, long time listeners might remember my anger with the overuse and misuse of the term tracking shot sure. to basically describe any steady cam shot of any length mm-hmm. um, when a, a tracking shot is a more specific thing. And uh, I, I do think it goes back to was a Mad Zoller Sides who had to like write about filmmaking yes. thing because I would have might end that would be like yeah write about filmmaking but also know what you're talking about yeah. because it's an important part of the movies movies aren't just the the you know how you they aren't just when you when you're writing about them it isn't just about how you feel or what the characters are like um, it's about what tools uh, and methodologies were used to yeah. get you to feel that way uh, and so not writing about it shows a lack of respect for filmmaking and also yeah. not taking the time to learn the terminology shows it shows a lack of respect yeah. for filmmaking. Yeah. We'll definitely dip into that. But anyway, so the point is like, I think everybody is in a bubble, most, especially the people, maybe not most, especially, but including the people that accuse other people of being in a bubble. Um, but the thing I want to say about the political ideology that also, also bothers me is you hear, um, from a lot of, um, I guess from a lot of conservatives or at least these type of um, conservatives, this idea of the coastal elites or the idea of like the, um, that, that what they're seeing is a relatively small portion of, uh, of the country using Mm -hmm. its um, cultural sway or whatever to, uh, to, to dictate norms and mores and values to the rest of the country. And I think I understand why it seems small geographically because you look mm-hmm. like California and New York are one twenty fifth of the states in America, right? Yes. But they also about a fifth of the country's population lives in California and New York. Like right. in terms of in terms of percentage of American citizens, it's actually not a small uh a, a small minority, you know, uh um uh, what's the word I'm like wielding outside mm-hmm. outsize influence. Um, I mean, if you want to get to that, I'll talk about outsize influence. Um, we're talking about the electoral college and how the, the, the votes per state need to be oh, re- yeah. reapportioned. Cause I think the, 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 the little chart that, um, you saw a lot right after the election was the mm-hmm. idea that a single vote in, I want to say it was Montana or Wyoming. Mm-hmm. I always get those states mixed up and I, I'm sorry to people who live in them because I, I always get those states mixed up. Oh boy. Let's say Montana. Okay. Um, like in terms of the corn husker oh, state, <laughs> no, that's Nebraska. <laughs> um, uh, in, in terms of like number of citizens to, 
electoral votes, a single mm-hmm. vote in Montana is essentially worth three and a half times as much as a right. single vote in California, even though California has literally 20 times as many electoral votes, yeah. um, if not more in terms of the population. Uh, so, uh, I, I guess, um, I, I want to see that sort of response happen more when people talk about the, 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 cultural elites or the coastal elites to talk about the bubble. I think there's a tendency, um, for us who are cultural coastal elites or whatever, um, or at least cultural coaster coastal liberals to immediately get like, to feel shamed by it, to feel like, Mm -hmm. like, Oh, we don't, you know, we don't live like most of the country, but that's, we need to look at the demographics and say, that's actually not that true just because geographically a large part of the country right. lives a certain type of life in terms of percentage of the population. Uh, what, what we do is, is valid. We're not fringe. And in fact, that's something that both sides need to realize is that the person who lives in, I don't know, San Francisco. Yeah. And the person who lives in Nevada, Missouri, <laughs> um, uh, you know where Nevada is, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and maybe one of them is a liberal, one of them, one of them's uh, conservative, one of them's uh, one of them just got naturalized yesterday, and one of them ha- had ancestors that came over on the Mayflower. Mm-hmm. They are both one hundred percent as American as each other, and that, I think that's something that both sides need to take the time out and 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 recognize that no one's opinion as American is worth any less than theirs because of where they live or any of these other external factors. They're if you're both, an American citizen, you're an American citizen, you're an American citizen. End of story. You're both as American as apple pie made by a white person. Is that the point you're making? <laughs> That's the point I'm making, yeah. Um, by the way, real quick, it astonishes me how much, how, just the balls of Missouri to have things named things, but uh-huh. not say it like that. Okay, so we've got Nevada. Yeah. What else? Lebanon. Lebanon. Yeah, but there's a Lebanon in Pennsylvania too. I think. Did, but is and it's pronounced that way. I think so. But yeah, I don't think that's a Missouri thing because there's also Cairo, Georgia, spelled like Cairo. I, th- <laughs> I think that's just a thing. I'm uh, not liking this at all. Yeah, and uh, St. Louis, the St. Louis area itself, because it was. Um, Settled by the French, uh, it's named after King Louis the Ninth. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's a it's a coin toss as to whether or not we're going to pronounce French words like French words, sure. or even New Orleans, which is still hold, held on to so much yeah. of its French uh, or at least Creole, Creole culture. Like, okay, you know the Grand Cathedral in in France, spelled C H R T R E S, the Cathedral at Chartres. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. There's a street named that in New Orleans. It's Charters. Oh, sure. Of <laughs> That's course. what it's called. <laughs> yeah. Got to incorporate that S. <laughs> if we if we die trying. Um, uh, well, we've gone guess, way off. And topic. when you think about, it, I guess like Los Feliz is a mispronunciation. Yeah. That's that's uh, uh, this. Okay. We're, we're so far off topic. But here's something that I, I even, find, even got in my first film. I know. Uh, th- okay. We're off of politics. This is just a little quirk that I find fascinating. Yeah. Right. The novel by Cervantes, Don Quixote, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's how you say it. Quixote. Yeah, it took me a long time to figure that out. You say Don Quixote. Mm-hmm. But if you're describing someone who has 
who, who, who displays the behavioral patterns or mental patterns of Don Quixote, that person is being quixotic. Yeah. And it's because quixotic is an English word. Yeah. Based on a Spanish name. Right. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Um, but I find that endlessly fascinating. Cause if you said chaotic, then someone's just like, or I guess it'd be chaotic. I guess. Yeah. All right. That's not bad. Yeah. Let's make that happen. I, I like saying quixotic though. It's a, fun, true. it's a fun word to say. You don't say. get to say X's that often in life. Oh, I get to say them all the time whenever I tell people my last name. Oh yeah. I'm I'm constantly, every time I go to a screening. Yeah. Bax B-A-X. Or every time I have to like call customer service or anything, anytime I have to give hmm. my name, it's my last name might as well be Bax B-A-X because that's how I've said it my entire life. Whereas you can say, my name's Tyler Smith. People people know how to spell Smith. Well, I've said my stupid, I've said my stupid joke, right? That <laughs> I that I tell, tell to uh, anybody that I'm, any official person I'm talking uh-huh. to, or I'll say, uh, they say, what's your name? I say, uh, Tyler Smith, Tyler, uh, T-Y-L-E-R, Smith, uh, traditional spelling. <laughs> and they'll always, they'll always <laughs> chuckle. And that's why I keep doing it. <laughs> yeah, I like that. that that's that's my kind of humor. Okay, <laughs> I, we're know, I know it is, which is why I'm so ashamed. <laughs> um, okay. All right, what's your first movie? Now that we've... Now, now, you know what? Apparently, we haven't alienated people with the political talk. Some people seem to care for it. Uh, yeah, is, in fact, nice. uh, I don't know if... Uh, I mean, this was, you know, not public knowledge, but our... Our friend Kate from the Televerse, uh, mm-hmm. we were just texting today, and she had nice things to say about our, our political talk. Absolutely. So, um, thanks, Kate. Yes, thank you. So, uh, my first film when we, here... When we get compliments from someone who is n- newer to and better than us, <laughs> like at podcasting... <laughs> Um, Look, Kate, all due respect, but come on, I disagree. Oh, I know. Uh, she I, is I, as good. Which is yeah. not bad, considering she's newer. She'll surpass us. There's no question about oh, it. Oh, I think she has surpassed us. You think so? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess when, I bought, when I've been on her show, I'm just like, I don't belong here. Uh, this, they're saying very smart things. Like when I was on to talk about Hannibal and stuff. Yeah. Ugh. Well, yeah, yeah, Kate, uh, I hope you're enjoying this, Kate. Kate wows me. Because when we, th- when we, t- when we talk about like work ethic, we're usually talking mm-hmm. about people rolling up their sleeves and getting their hands dirty. Yeah. Um, and I'm not, I don't know if Kate's, building barns or whatever on the weekends, but her dedication to being a TV critic is what makes TV critics. Like she has, uh, uh, whenever I have been on her show, she has a work ethic that floors me. And, uh, that's what I mean when I say she's better than, better than us at podcasting. Yeah, I guess we just keep doing it, but we keep doing what's super easy, which is maybe why we've, uh, stalled out as far as numbers. Um, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Yeah, Websites doing well lately. <clears throat> It always does this time of year. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's remember that game that I was talking about. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. All right. So Half an hour ago. <laughs> yeah. The game is, did Tyler watch this on his own or did he watch it for this class? And this class, do I get to know the name of the class? Film history. Film history. Okay. okay. That's what I thought. Uh, so, okay. Here's your first chance. Okay. Trip to the moon. I'm going to say this is for class. You're correct. Uh, yeah, almost all of these are going to be that. Although I, I hesitated for a second because I remember you saying the other day that your film history class was almost entirely American history. It is almost entirely. It, this is a, a French film. Yes. Uh, but it's silent, so it doesn't matter. Exactly. The language of film is universal. That's what the old landmark That's theaters. That's right. Uh, and you heard a yeah. bunch of words before that Marcus in different languages. Universal. Eglo. 
Kotovoa. Sakaitiki. So... I'm loving this class. Like I've only been sat in two lectures, but it's nice to get a refresher. You know, I, I haven't seen some of this stuff since we first saw it back in uh, Columbia. Um, and a trip to the moon is so much fun. It's so delightful. Um, you know, it has its silly special effects. And I think the key is that there's such a whimsy to it. You know, it doesn't take itself very seriously. Right. Uh, I think George Melier knows that he's being silly and is embracing it. Um, and yeah. And you know, listeners, if you haven't seen it, it it's about 10 minutes long. You can find, it, I'm sure any number of places online, you could probably find various versions of it on YouTube. And you know, the, it, it's very stagey, obviously, but there are a couple of moments, uh, where I can't even really tell how they did something. Mm. There's one particular moment where, because you know, the rocket to the moon is basically a bullet. It's a large bullet. Yeah. Um, and the, and the bullet is clearly, it looks like a flat that has been painted to look like it's three dimensional. Mm-hmm. So then the door opens and you see inside it and inside it looks like a, and then everybody crawls in and they're not just crouching down behind it. They're clearly getting inside of it. So it's just like, wait, okay, well I know this isn't three dimensional. So did they build a little compartment in the back of the two dimensional flat? I don't know. I couldn't figure hmm. I couldn't figure it out. Like, I mean the rest of it, you can, you can you pretty much have it, but, uh, but yeah, so there's, there's even elements there that it's just like, oh yeah, this guy, you know, was a magician for a long time on, on the stage. And, and I don't know, it, it, it really, it really shows. And so he's very committed to, it's, it is a bummer that he, that he did not evolve with the technology of film, because I think if you'd had somebody like him working in the, in the twenties and, bringing his artistic sensibility to films that were not as stagey. I feel like you could really, I don't know. I think he, he'd be talked about as one of the best filmmakers of all time, as opposed to he made this film and it's great. Um, that reminds me, did you see this, um, gift that went around about, um, uh, showing Charlie Chaplin's modern times and how the, uh, you know, the part when he's roller skating on the edge of that, uh, precipice and the at the mall and when he's in the or the department store or whatever at night and there's the one story uh, the upstairs where it's um it's 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 open you know what actually i don't remember okay. that i've seen the film but well look at that gif showing the uh how, how that was done the the plate isn't that super cool people should uh google this wow. if, if you if you haven't it's it's uh he was not all over the precipice of anything there was a uh, a mat set up in a frame in front of the camera That's and it great. was locked in, uh, perfectly to, uh, to make it look like there was a chasm behind him when really he was just on flat Man. on solid ground. How does anybody, how are people not film majors? <laughs> like I recognize that economically we need more than just people that love film and, yeah. and, and make film and talk about film. But honestly, why would anybody do anything else? <laughs> You look at something like that and you realize like, oh yeah, this is uh, amazing. All right. Are we, are we moving on? Yeah. All right. Um, 
this movie actually I didn't mean it this way but it kind of works as a companion piece to Aquarius um, and I finally caught up with uh, Mia Hansen loves things to come mm-hmm. um, which uh, is both movies are about uh, a, you know a middle-aged woman um, going through some sudden unexpected upheaval upheavals in in her life uh, this one is uh, Isabel Huppert um, plays a um, a philosophy teacher um, and, and writer whose husband is also a philosophy teacher. And then, um, and they they have two grown kids and, uh, and then one day um, her husband says, uh, I've been seeing someone else and I'm moving in with her. She gets, mm-hmm. she gets divorced, you know, at whatever age she's supposed to be. Um, and uh, in a way, so I said it's a companion piece to Aquarius, but it's also kind of a companion piece to L in which Isabel Huppert plays a woman where something drastic happens and she doesn't react the way you would expect or the way movie characters usually do. Um, I mean, there's some, there's some anger at her, um, at her husband, but, um, a lot of it, a lot of her reaction has to do with just sort of realizing that, um, she's free in a way and mm-hmm. she has that's that's the word she actually uses and in, in um in the sense that suddenly at this late stage in life for the first time in her life because she's you know been went from being you know a you know daughter to student to yeah. teacher to you know to wife to mother like for the first time in her life she is completely living according to what she wants to do um but it's also i feel like uh, describing it like that makes it seem trite um which it's not at all uh what it really is um the fact that she's a philosophy teacher is no um mistake uh it's a a movie and i tend to like these kind of talky movies that richard linkletter does where people are just talking about ideas while living their lives and sort of um it's certainly encouraging you to realize that things like the intellectual pursuits like philosophy don't just happen inside the head of intellectuals. They have real world applications. Yeah. Um, and this, uh, and this is a movie that where she gets to do the things she's been talking about, but also she gets challenged, uh, uh, about the ways that maybe she hasn't lived up to the way that she tends to think about the world, mm-hmm. you, you know? Um, it's uh it's a fantastic beautiful performance um and it's a really lovely movie um that is uh i would say uh, i again it's not trite but it is uplifting i think uh, okay. in a lot of ways it's it's yeah uh terrific i would definitely recommend checking out things to come she's having a good uh a good year banner, a banner year yeah, yeah. um it's so hot in here. I can barely draw breath. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's a moment ago. Like when you first came, it's like, it's nice in here. And I thought like, yeah, okay. It's going <laughs> to, it's going to get worse. Um, well, I'll say my next thing. And then when I'm done, I'll go shut that vent or turn off the, uh, the heat. Okay. Um, all right. So next the great train robbery. Okay. This is also for your class. That's for the class. Yes. Yeah. Um, you'll notice a theme here. Yeah. Uh, and this is also one that I haven't, like I've revisited trip to the moon. I don't think I've seen the great train robbery since I was in film school. Yeah. Uh, nor have I. And, uh, it is also great. Like there's a reason that this stuff, uh, sticks around and 
it's got just this great forward momentum. It is told completely visually. I mean, obviously they all are, but at the same time, there have been some even great silent films where it takes me a minute to understand what's happening and what's being uh, communicated okay. between characters and to the audience. Great train robbery, nothing like that. Like it is, every beat is clear without really even seeming that obvious. Uh, and and like I and like I said, just a, a lot of great momentum. And there's one shot. It's not the shot at the end, which is a dramatic shot, but um, there's one shot that I had such an appreciation for. Um, I tried to convey it to my uh, class today. I, I don't know if I did. Um, they seemed interested, but not actively so. Uh, the um, so there's a shot when. Because so many of these are done in, in one take. There's not a lot of cross-cutting or anything like that. And so it's just a, a, a static shot, usually a wide shot, and the, the action happens in it. Uh, so the, the train has been stopped, and all the passengers are being pulled off the train, and the robbers are robbing each of them individually. Mm-hmm. So then a guy breaks loose, breaks free from the crowd and starts running away. And he's running basically towards the camera. Uh, one of the robbers, uh, without hesitating, shoots him in the back, and the guy falls. And it's kind of a dramatic fall. But yeah. he just falls, and he just stays there on the train tracks, unmoving, in, base, I'd say, the foreground. But you see all of him. And he's not necessarily out of focus, but he's he's not necessarily front and center, but he becomes uh, the focus, even though he's dead. He's not moving. And so... He gets shot, falls down dead. The rest of the scene continues with the robbers just slowly but surely mm-hmm. stealing from everyone. And then they leave, and then the crowd immediately runs to this guy to see what, what ha- you know, if he's still alive. Um, so it's, it's such a dramatic image because, A, he's running essentially towards the camera. The, not yeah. directly, but sort of at a diagonal, but he's getting bigger to us. Yeah, I can picture the, the shot. Yeah, and so he's, in a way, it's like he's running to us for help, but then he gets shot, and when he falls, he doesn't fall out of the frame. He is there, and then the scene continues for, you know, another 30, 45 seconds, and there's just something, it, it communicates the real callousness of these mm-hmm. robbers, like they are full-on villains at this point. And... uh and just as these people are being robbed, he his body is there as a constant reminder to them and to us of what will happen right. if any of them even try to step out of line. And I just thought, like, what a great choice uh, to not have that a be the end of the scene because it seems like it could like that's the climax of the scene. Scene is now over, but no, it's a matter of fact thing that happens in the middle of the scene and then it continues, uh, which makes it grow in significance and grow in emotional resonance. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was such a great, uh, uh, such a such a an impactful shot to me. And I don't know. And in, in watching this stuff again and in hearing this history, you know, which I've, I've heard before, but it's been a while. Uh, I'm just renewed in my, in my love of film, even early film to be devil's advocate here. Sure. Have you considered that film language was so unsophisticated at the time that it might not have occurred to the filmmakers not to leave everything under the, under the proscenium as it were. Um, 
Yes, I did have that thought, and and it is uh, possible uh, that that's the case, maybe even probable, but I do think that there's still an argument to be made. Well, first off, we just saw on-screen violence, which is not a thing that was openly uh, embraced. There wasn't necessarily a debate going on, but it wasn't a thing that one could immediately expect to see someone get shot on screen, right. and then to see their corpse uh-huh remain on screen you know so the ch- so the choice might have simply to be you know might have been um to simply have this on screen and stay on screen as opposed to him fall and then the the power comes just from the inherent uh impact of the image and so yeah maybe the the director wasn't thinking like oh this will you know his corpse looms large over the rest of the scene it might not be that but it also there's an argument that could be made that the director unconsciously understands the power of, of this visually and it's conveyed to the audience. Okay. Um, I don't know if you still have to do anything with the, it shut off. So, uh, I'm not, uh, you go ahead. I think I will have to go. uh, Well, I I, I don't know if I want you to leave because the next movie, I can't remember. You might have seen this. Okay. Uh, I watched Jeff Nichols midnight special. I have not seen it yet. You'd like, so, that's what I hear. Uh, yeah. I like Jeff Nichols, but I haven't seen either of his films this year. This is a year um, in which there are there's there's another example too that I'm now forgetting. Oh, there's okay. So Jeff Nichols has two movies out this year: Midnight mm-hmm. Special and Loving. Loving, as we talked about, everyone thought was going to be the 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 big deal, the bigger deal. Yeah, Midnight Special, I definitely think is a better movie. Yeah, the same thing kind of happened with Pablo Lorraine. He made Jackie is the one that's you know because it's first American movie. It's based on uh, a beloved American icon and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, but Neruda to me is a, and I like Jackie, but Neruda is a better movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the only one this year that turned out the way I think it was expected to is Jim Jarmusch, uh, Patterson and give me danger. I would definitely say oh, Pat- sure. Patterson is the better, the better film. But, um, uh, midnight special was just a, uh, a, a terrific little movie that really, um, I think highlights the Jeff Nichols skill set in terms of, um, we talked about this as both a plus and a minus in loving, but I think it's mostly a plus here that his, his, tendency as a storyteller is to remove anything extraneous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't just mean extraneous to the plot, um, because he does include things that are maybe not plot centric, but are character, you know, that are important for the character, yeah. but there's no like embellishment. And as a result, there's no sentimentality. Um, I think there's a lot of comparing midnight special to, um, the sort of, you know Spielberg and, and Amblin type movies of the right. of the of the eighties, but he's not a sentimentalist. But that doesn't mean I think sometimes that worked against him in Loving. Here, the emotions become more because they become more primal. I think because mm. there's not uh, these layers on them, uh, they end up becoming more. You like you understand like Michael Shannon. Is, I don't know what you know about the story. Very um, little, actually. Okay, so um, uh, Michael Shannon and Kirsten Dunst uh, had a child that was, the, and they were they were part of a cult um, the, that was um, uh, run by Sam Shepard, I guess. Oh. And then they had a. I, I would join that cult. <laughs> they had a child that has some very special 
abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't go into some things. And he sort of became the focus of the cult to the point that Sam Shepard essentially adopted the kid from, even though the kid's parents were still together and still part of the cult, mm-hmm. Sam Shepard adopted them. And so what's, and this is all happened before the movie starts. Yeah. And so, uh, Kirsten Dunst has left the cult. Michael Shannon was still a part of it, but kidnapped his son and enlisted the help of his childhood friend played by Joel Edgerton, um, mm-hmm. uh, to, um, get him to a certain, get his son to a certain place in time that his son has foretold or had, you know, hmm. has had, you know, spoken through him or something like that. It's not, um, I mean, I say it's not important. It's actually vitally important, but yeah. it's not what I'm saying <laughs> right now. It's um, not on subplot actually. Everything I've said happens before the movie starts. Right. We, we, we join with Michael Shannon and Joel Edgerton on the run with this boy in the back seat, And we sort of learn, um, what the boy is capable of, um, and what's happened to him over his life in bits and pieces, uh, as it, as it comes up. But you understand like, um, uh, Michael Shannon is a father and is taking care of his son. That's primal. You understand mm-hmm. that Joel Edgerton is a devoted friend and you also learn, you learn more about him and what he, how long it's been since he's seen Michael Shannon and what Joel Edgerton has become in that time that, that sort of fills that in. And then you get Michael Shannon and Kirsten Dunst, a couple who have split up, but are still, parents to this boy and so you get these primal uh emotions of of relationships um that are uh that that just he just cuts through um the bullshit of sentimentality nothing sentimentality is necessarily a bad thing um but he he cuts to the heart of of it and it ends up becoming more powerful because of it and it's just a cool movie it's got some uh cool uh Low budget but good special effects. Okay, um, it's got uh, Adam Driver um, right. as the NSA um, analyst who's uh, put in charge of tracking down the yeah. The, so it's they, they're not just keeping the boy from the cult; they're also keeping him from the, the feds okay. who are who are looking for him. And Adam Driver plays the uh, NSA analyst, like I said, who's in charge of the task force. Um, it's a film and, that I keep forgetting to see. Yeah, it's because it, it's it's. You know, you were talking earlier about the, the, I forget exactly what you, the, the way movies are weighted as far as release based on uh, yeah. award season and stuff. So, you know, we, I get so bogged down this time of year in stuff that came out, you know, in the last four or five weeks. Yeah. And then I, and stuff that I've been meaning to see that I've heard is great, but came out in the spring suddenly just gets brushed out of my mind. So that's what I use this time. Cause I, I guess I, I see most of the like prestige releases up through the end of December. I, I get opportunities um, to see them and I take those. So I use this time to mm-hmm. catch up on these kind of things yeah. um, that I missed from earlier in the year. There's one thing I want to point out. Um, uh, now, Midnight Special takes place roughly now. Okay. But it's clearly in its style and even in the its costuming, it's clearly a throwback to the 80s. Yeah. And then there's one really conspicuous choice that made me laugh every time. The characters drink Pepsi, but the Pepsi cans are 80s Pepsi cans. Hmm. It's weird. <laughs> like, throughout the movie, and like it's not like... So like blatant as you like see someone take a swig of a thing, right. but it's usually like when like Adam Driver is doing his like 
calculations or whatever, there's like a Pepsi can on the desk and it's the eighties Pepsi logo. And there's a couple other places in the movie where that eighties Pepsi logo shows up. That's that, weird. It's a weird choice that I'm not sure why it was done. I mean, but they're like, like it clearly takes, like there are references to yeah. dates like, it, it, you know, uh, through like 2011. So if it's yeah. a period piece, it's one. They keep talking um, about the iPhone seven and stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. They keep talking about, um, uh, it's, it's a, it's a weird choice. Um, all right. Uh, what's next for you? Next for me is Damien Chazelle's La La Land. Oh, good. I saw this for class as well. That's not true. No, I didn't. Um, yeah. Uh, so I saw it, um, at this point, um, not, not even a week ago. Yeah. Obviously. Uh, it's, I, Oh, that's true. Yeah. That's the movie well, I didn't see it immediately after we <laughs> finished recording. Uh, and in many ways, I love it. And what I'm about to say, I can't tell if it's a criticism or not. It might not be. Okay. Uh, I, I, I can tell you, I've thought about this movie a lot. Okay. Because I love it, but it's become the victim of the standard, like front runner backlash. Sure. It always happens at this yeah. time. No matter what the movie is, there's some movie that everyone decides is overrated yeah. at this type of, at this time of year. So I've given a lot of thought in it from a defensive point of view, okay. uh, as someone who loves the movie. There is honestly, there's not much that I will pride myself in, but, uh, being able to put aside, uh, front runner backlash uh-huh. as far as Oscars or whatever it is, um, is something I, that I'm usually able to do to the extent that I actually, you know, I'll defi- I'll defend, uh, like in retrospect stuff, people will say like, uh, dances with wolves. It's like it's crime is that it's not good fellas. Uh-huh, right. That's it's crime. Yeah. There's always um, something like that. And so, uh, but what I will say is that, you know, the film is, is marvelous. I love, I loved it while I was watching it. Um, it is light as a feather and I haven't thought about it much. Now that's, oh, that's not, interesting. now here's the thing. That's not necessarily a crime. You know, it's not necessarily supposed to be a film that sticks with me. I approach it not unlike uh, Gravity. Gravity, while I was watching it, was an enthralling experience, and it just didn't really stick with me. Where, and I'm sure if I were to watch La La Land again, I would be enth- I'd be enthralled again. Uh, and then I've I've listened to some of the music, and the music is very good. Um, and I love I can't really find much fault in the film, um, except there's some there's some character shifts that don't totally make sense to me. Um, but that's a fairly small quibble. Um, you know, it's visually gorgeous. Uh, the songs are good. The, the choreography is, is amazing. It's, it's just this really nice, complete package. Um, but it's something that doesn't really stick with me. And that's, I think that's okay. I'm so surprised because I feel that way about gravity very much. Yeah. But I find something, I feel like I'm not sure how we should treat spoilers for La La Land at this point. Should we say we're going to spoil it? Cause I, cause like my biggest thing about the movie, I haven't been able to say cause it's about the way it ends. I think so many people are talking um, about it as like, it's this love letter to movie musicals going back to Stanley Donen and to sure. Jacques Demy. And it is that and people are saying it's a love letter to Los Angeles, which I think uh, it is. I don't even defend that. I know it's, it could be kind of superficial, but there's something else that it is more than that to me that it's, it's about a relationship and it, right, it, has, it has a very specific message about a relationship that is a spoiler. Okay. Let's, uh, let's say spoilers for like the next three or four minutes. Yeah. Okay. 
All right. So spoilers start now. The fact that this is a movie about something that is very dear to me, which is the idea that just because a relationship ends doesn't mean it failed. It doesn't mean it wasn't important. It doesn't mean that you won't always love the person in some way that a relationship, a passionate relationship between two people who love one another will be important to both those people for the rest of their lives. Mm. And it's not something to be looked upon uh, with regret because it ended just because something ended doesn't mean it failed. And I find that so touching. And it's something that I believe so deeply that to see it illustrated in a way that I found absolutely beautiful in Mm -hmm. the end with the fantasy sequence, um, you you know, Emma Stone seeing what her life could have been um, if she'd stayed with, with Ryan Gosling. Uh, uh, but then being happy at the end to leave with Tom Everett Scott in the same way. I, that's, that so speaks to something that I really, really believe about human relationships, um, that, uh, I can't help but be moved, uh, to the core by that. Uh, okay. So maybe this is where I, my little quibble, uh, plays a larger role. Maybe it's not so little a quibble. Um, the characters as created and as, and and the, their specific journeys individually and, and together, I don't really think that their relationship would have ended or at least not the way it did. Um, like, no, we said spoilers. We said spoilers. Okay. So, um, yeah, still in spoilers. If you've stopped here, Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll see you in a few minutes. Yeah. We should say Um, it every, every minute or so. So, uh, the idea that, you know, first off, I, the, the dinner fight sequence is marvelous, like great writing, Mm -hmm. great acting. Uh, one of the better, you know, for as whimsical as La La Land can be like, that's one of the better hard drama moments of the year, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. because it's a fight that I've, I haven't had that specific fight, but that tone, boy, that's exactly the way the couples fight. Yes. Uh, wonderfully observed. Um, but when you take into account what they're fighting about and then, and the, the, the sides that they both fall on in that instance, um, I don't believe that when, that when Ryan Gosling is making this plea later to her, that he would be content to just let this go He's a guy who is prone to be romantic, as he says at the beginning. Now, romantic in every possible sense of the word, not merely relationally. Um, he he makes this big gesture to drive out to Nevada, mm-hmm. um, which is a romantic gesture, not merely a friend gesture. And so for him to, to let it go, I, I could see him, her I could see wanting to walk away from it based on that dinner alone, but I could see him fighting for it a little harder. I don't think, I think it's because of what he went through the, because of, he saw the frustrations of diverting his own dream in order to be something more for the relationship. He took right. a steady job that wasn't his dream because it would made him a better part of the relationship, or at least what mm-hmm. he thought that, that, that she wanted. And so he has had that experience. And so he's looking at her and knowing he probably knows that the relationship has come back to a good enough place where he probably could talk her into staying yeah. or, or into taking him with her or, or whatever. But he knows from his experience that there's a good chance that she might resent him forever. Even if she stays with him and loves him. Yeah. The idea that her, her dream 
didn't get to be what it was because of him is something that he can't live with because he's already experienced it. And I guess I could see him as the type that would be absolutely willing to accommodate her dream and say like, just because you have to go to France, right? Just because you have to go do that does not mean that we have to end this. But he's already been through his own experience. That's what he would have been at the beginning of the movie. But he's been through his own experience, and so he's learned to be less, uh, I, I don't know, a little less pie in the sky <laughs> about things. He's, it, the movie becomes more romantic because he learns to be less romantic. And I, and I actually see that as a, as a sad thing. Um, well, of course it's sad. Know, it's, but it's better for both of them. And, I, and I'm not sure if I, I here's the thing. The fact I, what I do love is that she is happy with Tom Everett Scott. This is not Even a, though he's too old for her. <laughs> I'm just saying it's a little creepy. I don't think so. Well, hang on. How old is he? How old do you think Tom Everett Scott is? I'm going to say he is 43. I think he's closer to 50. You think so? Well, yeah, gonna, he might be. We're going to find out. According to IMDb, as long as they can still publish um, people's right. ages, um, he is 46. 46, okay. And she is fairly young. Um, she's 28. She's 28, okay. Uh, half of 46 is 23, plus 7 is 30. So that's the that's the rule of thumb, half your age plus 7. Okay. I don't know you've heard that before. I've not heard that before. Uh, that's a rule of thumb that people have out there. So he's she's two years too young for him based on that rule of thumb. <laughs> <laughs> all right well and then there's the element of you know there's a five how Still old in is, spoilers by the way yeah <laughs> how old is she because there's a five-year jump yeah, so how right, old is right. she I'm, during it's, that it's that's not it's not important no it's, it's fine <laughs> it's but she don't thing i said but they do seem to be genuinely happy i don't I, i'm glad that this is not if you uh, if you'll pardon me a titanic situation where <laughs> you know when she dies it's like now to return to my true love and i'm yeah. sure her husband's like um I'm over here and we spent our entire lives together, but I guess I'll just go fuck myself. Not in your fantasy. Um, it's, uh, yeah. it, it By the way, bothers me t- tremendously. When Tyler mentioned dying, he's talking about Titanic. Titanic. Yeah. 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 Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> we didn't just spoil that someone dies yeah. <laughs> in low end. Although we are still in spoilers. I yes. guess we can get out of spoilers. We're pretty much. Yeah, done, I think right? so. Um, um, cause I have another thing that has nothing to do with spoilers okay. that I will, um, uh, I, I will say this is a complaint that is valid and it frustrates me in this movie and in a lot of movies um, uh, going back to Paul, Tom- Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, a movie that I didn't like for a long time, revisited about a year and a half ago and realized I was wrong. Magnolia is brilliant. Yeah. But both movies, uh, I think, present an unforgivably, unrealistically white portrayal of of Los Angeles. Uh, you know, yeah. the only, like... The only people of color in Magnolia is there's like uh, the woman whose house the cop has to go to, which yeah. is not a good uh, betrayal. The the black woman, and then there's like Louise Guzman who has a very very small uh, yeah. role. And that's uh, about it. Um, and in La La Land, black people are basically just used to represent jazz, <laughs> which is yeah. definitely troublesome yeah. and problematic. But they're not the ones that are going to save it, incidentally. Um, Although I see that's another thing. I think the movie is aware that Ryan Gosling's full of shit. And yeah. I think from the beginning it has first Rosemary DeWitt and then, um, uh, John legend. Yeah. Call him on the fact that he's full of and shit. And I do like that scene where he calls him on it because it, it winds up being more than simply, Hey, you're not my white savior. It's not that it's also, you know, you're this traditionalist and yet 
the nature of jazz is not sitting in one thing. And so I yeah. thought that was actually really interesting. And I also, I, I actually might write something about this if I have time uh, for the website. Um, I think that what John Legend says to Ryan Gosling about jazz, I think it applies about jazz, but I think it's also a comment on the way the movie is trying to relate to the city of Los Angeles. Um, yeah. What do you think about it as a quote unquote love letter to Los Angeles? Uh, I think it's a movie that people are not giving credit for how self-aware it is. Okay. Um, in, in terms of like we talked about with Scott last week, um, the fact that it includes it, it, at first it includes the Rialto theater in Pasadena, mm-hmm. which was closed already at the time. Right. Uh, but then it includes the Rialto closing. I think that's kind of the, the the equivalent to what john legend says that's mm-hmm. the movie saying um we can't just love what's old about los angeles part of what's unique about los angeles is that, is that it's a city that often feels um if this is possible actively indifferent to its own history sure it's a city that is um constantly um, trying to that is constantly being amorphous and and yeah. uh, reinventing itself in different ways and in different neighborhoods, and it's also a city that is completely um, non-homogenous uh, from neighborhood to neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I mean, I think that's true of most cities in a lot of, in a lot of ways, but um, Los Angeles more than more than maybe any other city, at least in in the U.S., is yeah. is more a collection of neighborhoods than it is uh, a city. Um, and so, um, the idea of trying to freeze Los Angeles in Amber in some way, mm-hmm. um, is, uh, it's enticing. It's something that I find myself doing a lot as the longer I've lived here and the more I've fallen in love with the city, but you also have to be aware of the realities of the just day to day world, yeah. uh, in terms of, um, economics and, and, and business and uh and gentrification and all these all these elements um you 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 can't um be constantly trying to hold on to los angeles's past you have to be aware that it's changing and understand that the changing of los angeles at all times is part of its identity so the fact that they're able to ride the was it angel flight, is right? That what which it you can't do. Which you can't do. You could. I did only a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, it was closed for a long time. Then um, they opened it up. You could ride it again, and then it derailed, uh, and um, then they closed it again. But apparently, they got they opened it for Damien Chazelle yeah. to to shoot on there. Um, but even that, yeah, the fact that the, the, the fact that shows that they show them, uh, writing it is, I think a sort of inside joke, uh, to Angelinos, uh, and especially the more, you know, about the angels flight, which isn't even where the angels flight is now as a, uh, essentially a tourist attraction, isn't even where it was when it was functioning. It was like half a block (laughs) the other (laughs) down the street when, when Bunker Hill, um, still existed when it, that's when it existed for is to take people from Hill street up to their, the residential neighborhood of Bunker Hill, um, which is, I mean, you've talked about Los Angeles, the way it changes itself sometimes brutally. We've, you've got like Bunker Hill and Chavez ravine, which are two of the most gross overuses of eminent domain in Los Angeles or in U S history. People who were, these were still neighborhoods that were not that, you know, that people were still living and thriving in that were knocked down. Um, Chavez ravine, um, 
for Dodger Stadium and Bunker Hill uh, for a business district to stop the businesses on Spring Street from fleeing, which is what they hmm. were doing because that part of downtown was falling apart and the city was seeing like, hey, our business, you know, banks and stuff are lighting out for the suburbs or other parts of the country. Let's uh, let's build them a, a home of new skyscrapers and stuff and uh, let's use them in our domain and essentially kick an entire neighborhood of people out of their homes in order to do it. It's pretty gross. That's, that's a bummer. Yeah. Uh, now I did have this, th- this thought and I don't know if it's fair or not and maybe it's, maybe it's okay. I don't know. La La Land, <clears throat> excuse me, is a great musical movie or a great movie musical. Okay. I don't know if it is a great musical and, uh, and that's okay. Cause it's a movie, so that's fine. But when I think of how, how few songs there actually are in it. Yeah. Um, and that opening sequence, I actually don't love a lot of people are in love with it. I actually don't really like it that much. I, I like don't it dislike it. I think it's fine. Yeah. But, um, and I also like the message of that, which is the, the sort of cynical, like, or at least yeah. like tongue in cheek message of that song. The, yeah. you know, Los Angeles, another day of sun, the people who are stuck in their cars in a, yeah. in a, in a traffic jam. Um, it's not exactly a unique observation, yeah. but it definitely shows the movie is more than just one note about its love letterness. Right. Sorry. And of course it's been raining the last several days uh, as well. Uh, it's so. been rain- I feel like it's been raining since like mid November yeah. at this point, uh, yeah. which I know like we're living in blade runner times now, David. <laughs> uh, yeah. I know we, you know, we need it. It's mm-hmm. we're, we're in a drought. And so I'm, I'm grateful, but a part of me is like, I moved to Los Angeles like to see the sun. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen the sun. I'm like losing vitamin D. I'm, I'm fine with it. <laughs> um, I don't go outside that much anyway. Um, but that, that opening, like when I think of a, of, of a musical and maybe I'm being too, too literal. Um, I tend to think of really catchy songs. I think of usually at least five or six of them at least. Mm-hmm. And then probably a little, you know, uh, musical stings here and there. Um, but I tend to think that understandability of lyrics is a big thing. And like that opening song, like I didn't really understand it. And I did have the thought is like, what we needed is once it doesn't have to be one of the leads, but we have to have like one central person sort of leading the, that song. See, I don't think that's what I think it just needed a different sound mix. Uh, it it might be that. I I think that's, um, another thing I'll say about the movie that, uh, is consistently the vocals are mixed too low for like for musicals. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know what? I think that scene, absolutely. So that might be part of the issue. Um, and in others, I, I would definitely agree. Um, and I tried to, and I saw it at the arc light, you know, like I tried to see it where everything would be ideal. Um, so gosh, yeah, that's a, that is unfortunate. Yeah. I think that's, Um, that's a problem, but, uh, but yeah, and I do like the songs that are there, but I just, when I think of, you know, it's this love letter to, well, sorry, it's too dismissive. It's, it's reductive to say that, but you know, it's, it's paying homage to these, uh, great movie musicals without, I think, without, I think ever totally capturing what they are. Well, I guess that goes to my thing that I'm saying about jazz or about Los Angeles, or whatever. Yeah. like you can't if it's entirely just uh um aping these early musicals you know yeah. uh, uh, it would it it would risk almost becoming parody it has to deal with the reality that it's a movie that's 
being made in you know shot in 2015 or at least in 2016 it, it, it has to, it has to be a 21st century movie so along those lines what do you think of this comparison it is not unlike the artist at that point uh, i think a lot of and, people are making that are they this is the first time I, I think i've but i think me thinking it right now is the first i've heard of it i think people are making it in the in the way that i was talking about earlier in terms of frontrunner backlash oh really i think that's the comparison they're making is like la la land's not that great it's just the artist because of course the artist also suffered from front frontrunner backlash um I think the artist is a delightful movie. It, yeah. it wasn't anywhere near my top 10 that year, yeah. but uh, I, I like the artist quite a bit. Yeah. Both of them are, are delightful films. And I will say this, that at its best, and this is no small thing at its best, La La Land is everything that a movie can be. There and that's go. pretty good. All right, let's uh, move on. Okay. Um, uh, we're going to have to stop because our guest is going to be here uh, okay. any, any second. Um, oh, we're so, we're such blowhards, David. We talked about politics for so long yeah. and we talked about La La Land for so long. Yeah. Um, but it was fun. Spoilers done. Fun. Did yeah, we spoilers announce done. that? Uh, yeah, this one, um, uh, I watched Alex Gibney's, uh, movie, uh, zero days. Um, which one is that? I lose track of his film. He makes so many. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't remember until I watched it, uh, what it was about. It's about the, um, quote unquote Stuxnet virus and the, um, sort of, cyber warfare attacks on Iran's, uh, nuclear, um, uh, facilities that, um, the movie gets enough sort of whistleblowers to pretty much make it clear that this was a joint effort between the U S and Israel, mm-hmm. but no one has actually officially taken any, um, any credit for it. Yeah. I mean, he, one of the interview subjects is Michael Hayden, who was the head of the CIA at the time. And even he like says, he insists that he heard about Stuxnet when he read about it in the newspaper, yeah. um, which, which you've got other people, other, you know, CIA contractors anonymously like saying, uh, and, uh, and, uh, at least one Mossad agent, uh, anonymously like being very clear about who it was, who, who did this. Um, I think it's interesting. We, you know, um, we talked at the end of last week's regular episode with Scott, we talked because his favorite movie of the year was a, a documentary. And we talked about documentaries. Uh, and so I was in that mindset of the Alex Gibney type of documentary, which is cinema is journalism, essentially like he's yeah. gathering information and then organizing it and, uh, transmitting it to the viewer. Um, and he's doing so in the way of like a good long form, article that you would read in uh, you know i don't know the 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 atlantic or the nation or something like that um and i don't think that and i don't think that's necessarily i don't think that's a bad use of cinema right um but i do kind of understand how it's you know like the artist it's never going to crack my that kind of movie's almost never going to crack my top 10 i mean sometimes i've come close when there's anger in them that i can feel like with sure. the corporation or inside job like those are movies that uh citizen I, four definitely I, I responded to but citizen four is different i think there is more oh but that's art. not him never mind never yeah. mind yeah uh, um and neither of the other two that I, he didn't yeah. do the corporation or the inside right. job either i'm saying uh, and that's why yeah his movies never i know i mean i was it just last year two years ago going clear like made a number of top 10 lists and i found it interesting but it's never like it doesn't that kind of thing doesn't move me um, it, zero days definitely works intellectually and raises some questions. It has uh, a, a very specific point of view that it gets to by the end, which is that um, cyber warfare 
can be as dangerous as nuclear warfare and we need to treat it as we do nuclear weapons but we don't because um nuclear weapons are objects that you can you know uh you know you can scale back or whatever Mm. but cyber warfare they're treated as operations or missions and so they're kept secret interesting but we if we needed we need to treat viruses like we do weapons uh and be more aware of where they're coming from, who's making them, who's using them, uh, uh, in order to, the more we know, the more the different countries know about each other's capabilities, the more that like with nuclear, uh, um, uh, treaties and yeah, deterrent, it works as more of a deterrent. There's more peace, the more knowledgeable they are. But this, um, you know, this was a, a computer virus that mm-hmm. literally could have killed people. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's rare, but increasingly it's probably less going to be less rare. Uh, and so it makes an interesting point of view. It's definitely a worthy watch. Like I think, I think all of Alex Gibney's movies, uh, are, are, are worth a, a sit, but, um, it's also not, yeah, like I said, it's not going to blow me over. You said something, uh, and this might be, you know, splitting hairs, but, um, you said something about Alex Gibney that struck me as interesting where you said it's <coughs> cinema as journalism. Mm-hmm. I would say Alex Gibney is journalism as cinema. Okay. Where, because when I think of going clear, uh, I think of like, it's, it's a very effective film, but there are also little, little tweaks where like little musical moments and and that sort of thing and his okay. use of for example the theremin uh-huh. um making it seem all sci-fi and which itself is a commentary on what's happening yeah that's and true, that's true. that is a cinematic choice but it's definitely an edit it's an editorial choice yeah. uh and so there's definitely there's it's not full-on journalism it's journalism mixed with editorial as and utilizing the tools of cinema to bring in the editorial element. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't want to get into the discussion of what is journalism because I don't think that the line is actually as clear as you're making it between journalism right. and editorialism. Um, I, I don't think it's necessarily wrong for uh, a journalist to have a, a goal in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I still think it's journalism, but I also very much see what you're saying that it's, uh, it, it, it has the ability because it's cinema, because it's art and therefore artifice. It has the ability to put its thumb on the scale in certain, yeah. in certain points. Well, and that's the thing. I don't mean to say that it's, that it's more one than the other. I think it's, it's which way does it start? And then what does it utilize to achieve those goals? Okay. And I think it, I think it starts as journalism and actually sees cinema as a way to have, to have the most impact. All right. Uh, what is next for you? All right. So my last film is, uh, you know, we're talking about musicals. So my last film is Stanley Donan's, uh, singing in the rain. Not for class. It's for class. Oh, really? That's right. Um, weird, uh, coincidence. Yeah. Strange, right? Uh, so I would have assumed it was inspired by La La Land. Yeah, it's, I mean, certainly there was a lot of, there was some talk about La La Land in uh, class. Um, the instructor suggested that we, that everyone go see it if they hadn't seen it. Um, so this is my first time seeing it since you and I did a profile of Walter Plunkett, the, the costume, costume designer. designer. 
And, uh, and I, you know, you may recall, I did not care for it that much at the time. I had a certain degree of respect for it, but I uh, didn't really like it that much. Um, I definitely like it a lot more now. And there are moments that I absolutely love. Um, and I think, you know, I have so much more respect for, and I know it wasn't that long ago, but you know, it's, you may recall that we had our, we talked about our phases, mm-hmm. um, uh, a while ago. And yes. I, I was in the, like, I don't like musicals phase for quite a while. Um, and I don't know if, if I first watched singing in the rain while I was in that phase or not, but there are definitely some residual elements to it. And, um, but in watching it again, uh, of course, first off, it's gorgeous. It's nice use of color. Um, I enjoy the humor. It ha- it's definitely a lot more biting than I remember. And, uh, and I enjoy Gene Kelly and, and Donald O'Connor. And then, you know, because of the recent passing of Debbie Reynolds, I was paying special attention to her. Uh, she was very young when she made it. And I think she was like 19 or 20 or something like that. And, I will say that for somebody like that, somebody that age, mm-hmm. to hold her own against Gene Kelly, because the two have to be, you know, adversarial for a while, and he is there. Gene Kelly could be actually uh, sardonic in a very specific way. Uh, there's a reason that he was cast in uh, Inherit the Wind as the H.L. Uh, uh, Mencken character. Um, and so for her to hold her own against that and, and kind of have him on the ropes sometimes uh, really speaks to her inherent power as an actress. Cause you know, she didn't have a great deal of experience uh, yet. Um, and he was much older than she was. And so she's, yeah, she's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I really appreciate the dancing. Uh, I, I saw a film somewhat recently, like in the last two or three years, I think that was uh, recommended by uh our own, uh, Scott and I, uh, it's always fair weather, which, uh, I loved quite a bit. Uh, and I think I've just come to appreciate really amazing choreography. The one thing that got the, sorry, not the one thing, but the big thing that got me last time is the thing that kind of got me this time. And that is the Broadway melody sequence, which is, you know, got you in a way, got me in a negative way. Oh, l- last I love time. It's so beautiful. Well, it's, yes, that's true. Um, but, you know, in talking with my, uh, my students today, uh-huh. uh, they were bothered by it as well. And so in having to talk about the purpose of it, uh, I sort of, it's not that I talked myself into it, but it's like, okay, I, I think I do have a, f- a more firm grip on what this is meant to be than I did a few years ago where it is, again, it's just pure spectacle. It's, and yes, they are taking a break from, the specific story being told, but they are making a musical and Mm -hmm. musicals have this. And, and so it's just a celebration of dancing. It's a celebration of music. It's a celebration of color and it's a celebration of film. And while you could officially cut that out and the story continues, it wouldn't be quite the same. Um, and so, uh, so that was something, and it led to a larger thing that I told my students, which is that like, you know, there's, there's, I'm somebody that I appreciate a good narrative. I like good stories and good characters, but film is not exclusively about that. It Mm -hmm. can be about, uh, a celebration of, of visuals or trying to evoke a specific tone to get a, a reaction from the audience. Like it can be about any number of things. We tend to think purely 
in terms of story because that's what we see most often and that's usually what resonates with me the most but doesn't have to Mm -hmm. and so moments like that are just pure film at that point and so um so yeah, having to having to talk to the students about it kind of gave me. I already had an appreciation for it, but having to verbalize it uh, was very helpful for me. So I was very happy to see it again. It is it is a remarkable film. Okay, um, I have two more. The the this first one won't take very long, uh, but I have officially seen a 2017 release. Okay, uh, I saw Stacy Titles' The Bye Bye Man. Okay, uh, how was yeah, it? Uh, well, it's it's called that and. <laughs> It doesn't, uh, 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 paraphrase my review, but it, it doesn't make any effort to make that make sense. It's still, it's just the name of the monster and people say it constantly. And at the end yeah. of the movie, you're like, yeah, it's still stupid. <laughs> like the bye bye man is a stupid thing. Uh, but, um, I think with a stupid name like that, I think there's maybe some eagerness for it to be bad you know what i mean like mm. some schadenfreude like let's see how dumb this dumb movie is it's not that it's it's a it, it's a competently made horror movie okay it has a script that does not trust its audience there's so much exposition that constantly does, that does not surprise me uh <laughs> from what i know of the screenwriter um oh i don't know anything about the screenwriter. his name's jonathan penner he's been on survivor three times oh okay he's in the movie um okay yeah he has a very small part um not small enough he's clearly not an actor um, <laughs> no he is an actor oh well he well he's, he's it might be it might have been out of it for a while but do you remember the live action tick uh-huh um in the very last episode there's like this organization of superheroes and he's like the Superman who then goes to Clark Kent and he's actually quite delightful. Uh, okay. but yeah, that's a bummer that he uh, is out of practice. It would appear. Yeah. And maybe it's just that it's, he wrote himself an awkward, he's one of, there are so many characters who only exist to be exposition. Yeah. And unfortunately the best actors in the movie are just, exp- you've got Carrie Ann Moss, um, character actress, Cleo King, mm-hmm. uh, if you know who she is and Faye Dunaway. I'll show up and they're just there for exposition. It's ridiculous. And you've got a core <laughs> cast of, you know, good looking 20 somethings who are, who range from boring to outright terrible. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, there are some definitely, uh, some big problems with the movie. I, I think assume the bye bye man himself is played very well, but yeah, our friend Doug Jones, uh, and he's played well, I think probably, because he doesn't have any dialogue. The Batman doesn't yeah. talk, uh, and the dialogue is the worst part of this movie. Um, I do think that Stacy Title, I haven't seen any of her earlier work. Um, I do think there's a good movie in her mm-hmm. if she had a script that, you know, if she were given something that were a little more, uh, a little more mature horror movie like a Babadook or It Follows, from what right. I understand. I didn't see It Follows, but uh, from what I understand, something that um, doesn't. It's just, it's so stupid for the movie to have so much exposition yeah. because it's already such a form- formulaic story that like you can already, you can already guess where the movie's going to go. And yet it still has to constantly tell you about its mythology. What bums me, what bums me out about it. And this goes to the, the, it follows thing is you create a monster and yes, some of them have a mythology like a Freddy Krueger and, and, and that's somehow okay. Partially because Freddie himself talks. So you actually don't need people to frame him a certain way. He will speak for himself. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Um, but the idea of having a monster that is simply there and yes, there does need to be some explanation of, you know, quote unquote, the rules mm-hmm. to go back to that. Um, but, uh, 
I don't know. It's it was something I was actually holding out a certain degree of hope for the Bye Bye Man because I was hoping that it would be something that's just there's just this thing. There's no explanation. Uh, good luck. No, because I thought that would be great. Yeah, there's a there's a bunch of explanation. Um, well, yeah, way, way too much. But I mean, and Stacey titled makes some great uh, choices in terms of framing. Something that I always like in horror movies is is patience, and I also like a use of shadows and negative space to sort of make you paranoid. Mm-hmm. You know, like yes, I love to, that. Like sometimes with certain hackier directors, you can see like okay this shot is framed with a conspicuous amount of shadowy space over this person's shoulder. Obviously the bad guy's about to pop out from there. Yes. And Stacey title plays on, I think your knowledge of those tropes and intentionally fills a lot of the, 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 the frame with shadows and stuff. And even, even before you have a reason to believe something might jump out, you're, you're, you're in this paranoid mindset where you're, you know, you've got the, character at the center of the frame but your eyes keep searching around in the corners to see yeah. uh, if there's if I love there's dangers it's it's really yeah it's, it's a it's a smartly constructed film from a formal and aesthetic viewpoint yeah. it's just uh the the screenplay is constantly in the way anyway okay, okay move on to uh one of i would say uh, this is part of my catching up on 2016 movies especially this wasn't one that got a lot of uh uh, uh respect but um Uh, let's let's talk about a a big surprise um a big contender for uh my most underrated movie of the year slot um especially coming from me since i tend to be real hard on this director but i i saw robert zemeckis allied oh okay i loved it all right uh it um there i mean like i said there's a part of me that will always be hard on zemeckis because i think um uh that his he has such strong natural talents as a visual storyteller that he doesn't use that he sometimes uses in superficial ways yeah. or in ways that are condescending to the audience. And I don't think he does that here. Um, but basically he just makes a sort of, uh, uh, you know, it's a classic throwback Hollywood, yeah. like, um, the spy romance. Um, but I think it has more, um, moral awareness of the, um, the, the toll that, uh, or the kind of people that they have to be, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of, it's almost like another Brad Pitt movie. It's like Mr. And Mrs. Smith yeah. in that these are people whose entire lives are morally fluid. Everything they do is colored by lies. They lie and they kill people for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't stop because they fall in love with one another. Yeah. In fact, they might, uh, this is kind of like a lot of land situation, but we won't go into spoilers, but I can't really get into everything about it without spoiling, um, the end. But, um, I think there's something, uh, both very cynical and romantic about the movie at the same time in the way that these, the, it, it understands how people who are in love can still, um, lie to one another and hurt one another, but it also believes that there's something deeper that connects them. That love is some sort of pure force, uh, that they can get through that. Like, uh, it's, it's almost an abstract thing. Like I could be 
you know, if you're at least the movie's point of view is that if you're if these two people are in love, even if it turns out that one of the people is never who they said they were and the entire relationship is uh, in, in some ways constructed around a lie of who the person says they were love is deeper than that. And they can still say no matter that, that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we still, uh, I, I still trust and love you. And I think there's, uh, as someone who could be cynical and romantic and romantic and hopeful at the same time, this movie definitely, uh, pushed some buttons for me. And it's also just, it's, it's beautiful, uh, to look at the costumes are, are great. Uh, like mm-hmm. I said, Robert Zemeckis is great with, um, uh, framing and camera movement and, and, uh, and editing, uh, also it's a movie, um, it's a war movie and a romance. Uh, it doesn't have, uh, I was thinking about this morning while I was walking my dog, which usually, uh, that's my like, uh, in the shower moment. Like yes. I think about movies while I'm walking my dog and I was thinking about like quantity versus quality of, uh, violence. Mm-hmm. The movie only has like two scenes that you would really describe as violent. Uh, but he doesn't hold back. There's like, yeah. you know, blood gushing out of bullet holes and stuff like that in, in this movie. And it's, and it's, uh, uh, there's, there's, uh, yeah, the, the quality of violence, uh, is I think what it should be for, uh, a war movie and for a movie about people who are killers. I was looking up the writer, uh, Stephen Knight. Um, mm-hmm. interesting filmography. I gotta say, cause you've got stuff like dirty, pretty things mm-hmm. and Eastern promises and lock which i liked but then you also have the hundred foot the hundred foot journey and pawn sacrifice and seventh son and burnt and it's just an interesting and he's one of the creators of uh peaky blinders and that show taboo with uh tom hardy he's a very it's it's weird i feel like i should know his name more than i do which is not at all um it makes me think that he's got like the things that he likes which is probably which are like thrillers like genre yeah. these thrillers and then he also works as a hired hand like adapting the hundred for journey yeah i saw seventh son i i reviewed <laughs> that for the site and uh yeah i don't see a whole lot of eastern promises or dirty pretty things in that one uh dirty um, pretty things such a great movie um i think that's uh, it we, yeah we don't have any tv